From the greater Boston area, you are listening to the My Turn Conversations, brought to you by Tufts Education Reentry Network. These are stories of life during and after incarceration told by people who've lived it and are working to overcome the odds. What they say in the AA recovery, what is it? The serenity prayer. Can you kick it for me, just the serenity prayer, Aaron? Can you give it to me real quick? Yeah, grant me the courage to change, the courage to change the things I can. It starts with God. Yeah, See, it says, it's God, grant me the, the serenity, serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's right. And that's the model that I live by. See, I can't change that past that happened, but I got the courage to change the person that I am today. And I ask God to give me the serenity and the peace of mind to deal with that past that I cannot change, you know? And that's how I evolve into the person that I am, you know? When you talk about recovery, that little piece there is the strongest piece that I ever got from an AA meeting, recovery meeting, because there's so much value in that prayer, you know? And it defines the whole concept of how I live today. Hey, my name's Curry H. And uh, a long, long time ago, I was a big old square. And then I got caught up into some drugs. And then from drugs, I got into crime. And then from crime, I went to the penitentiary for a very, 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 very long time. And then I had to find my way out of that prison. So I learned some things in the prison to help me get out and to help further my life. But those stepping stones that I used to get out of prison with just the first start was the first step of a somewhat long existence in the world of what we call freedom. Hey, it's Aaron. So I grew up in a upper middle class white town and uh, kind of from, from a young age, when I was seven years old, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and uh, you know my life, my life was pretty good, but that really impacted me um, in a way that I didn't realize at the time. And probably around the time, I was in middle school, so I was like 12, 13 years old. I first got introduced to, uh, to pot and to, to alcohol. And from the moment I tried them, it was, it was like I found peace. You know, I found escape um, in, in alcohol, in drugs, and I took off running. You know, it, and then as, I encountered obstacles, things just, I just got deeper into it. And um, things really hit a critical critical mass when I was uh, 19. I had managed to get myself into college and I was uh, on the basketball team there. And it was, it was uh, the end of my spring semester, my freshman year, and I found out that my brother had uh, died by suicide. And from there, that's when I really like fell into um, to hard drugs, started doing heroin, and 
from there, it was just, it was starts and stops. It was addiction and I'd try to do something right in my life. It would fall apart and I'd turn, I'd get deeper into the addiction. And then, um, you know, in my, in my late twenties, I really started to, um, I, I made the choice to start feeding my addiction and stop paying for it and start selling drugs. And that landed me right in prison. My name is Eugene, and prison was predetermined for me before I was born. Um, you know, so I, I kind of followed that script growing up as a child, you know, getting in, encountering, tr you know, trouble as far as getting, I went to the school, the prison pipeline. And then from there, I ended up going to DOS, Department of Youth Services. And then from Department of Youth Services, I ended up in prison, where I spent 27 years in prison. And, you know, looking back on it, it's, for me, it's just a, it's, it's a tragic situation, but um, it made me, it turned me into the man I am today. I'm humble, I'm humbled. I'm grateful, you know, just to be out here in society and have that chance to be able to, you know, give back and to, you know, try to keep or, or, or inspire others to not end up where I was at, right? Because it's a, it's a fucking horror show inside those prison walls. So growing up, like, I always, I always viewed myself as different from the community that I was in. And I, there was always, um, I never felt like I fit in and I didn't fit in to what people wanted me to be. And I think with um, some losses that I experienced at a young age to, uh, to close family members, that it really instilled in me a distrust for the idea that if you do the right thing, everything's gonna work out. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I actually, maybe it was a little foreshadowing into my later life, I got suspended from school for two weeks because I was selling my, I was prescribed Ritalin and I was selling it to kids in my grade. And I got suspended and they did this thing where like, they didn't arrest me Again, different story if I was black, but they didn't arrest me, but they brought me down to the police station. And I was sitting there, my mom was next to me, and the detective was across the table and he had this little notepad. He got up to go get some coffee, maybe a donut, and he left his notepad. And me, I look up and I lean over the table to see what's on his notepad. And it said, I had this teacher, I'll just Miss Z, we'll call her, she said that I was in class taking white out, putting it on the desk, letting it dry, and then breaking it up into lines and doing lines of white out off my desk in class as a 12 year old. The detective came back in 
And I said, listen, before we get going, I need to ask you about what the fuck it says on that piece of paper. Because let me ask you this. If I was doing lines of whiteout in the middle of class off my desk, why the fuck is this the first time she's saying something to somebody? You should probably let people know right away. End of the story, though, is I realized that this lady is supposed to be guiding me, molding my mind and my spirit to be a successful person. All fucking adults, and this is the mindset I had, all fucking adults are just big fucking kids. They all want to be in on the story. They all just want to be, something's going on, let me get a piece of that. And legitimately, from that moment on, I didn't trust anybody that was telling me anything. Because who the fuck are they? Like, they just want to fit in the same as they want to be a part of it. And that really eroded my trust. And um, I, I really avoided any kind of meaningful relationship. And being an, an addict, that's a great way to do it. Because the only people you're going to surround yourself with are other addicts. And all anybody really cares about is not each other. It's just about getting high. And um, so, trying to make this quick. But... So I was dating this girl before I got locked up. We were together for about two years. She was from the Bronx. Uh, she moved up to Boston to live with me. It was great. We were both addicts, but we really did, you know, I, I loved her, uh, she loved me. And I got arrested a week into my incarceration. A lieutenant came down and told me that she overdosed and died um, in my apartment, in our apartment. And um, that really is something where being in prison is not a place to grieve uh, or deal with that. So I'm still kind of working through that. And to be honest, I realize like those traumas of like relationships from my life still carry with me. Um, I realize that like interpersonal connection is something that I need and is important in my life. But it's also maybe one of the things that I'm least comfortable with and most afraid of. Um, so it's kind of this tightrope where like, um, you know, you can't lose what you don't have. And that's kind of the safest way in my mind still to operate in terms of relationships is, is at a distance is best um, because then it won't hurt when it's, when it's taken or when it's gone. Well said, homie. To add further with the trust thing that you just mentioned, like I always had like a problem with male authority figures, right? But especially like white male authority figures, right? Um, you know, because of my time in, in, in DYS and this school system and dealing with police in the neighborhood. But you know, um, you know, we was talking about you know, like childhood and, and, you know, what it means to be a man. And so, so you know, I remember coming up, and I, I'm pretty sure, Curry, you can relate to this, you know, get this warped sense of manhood, right? What manhood is in, in the hood. And it's sort of like, you know, you got to take this, this rite of passage when you come from the hood. This rite of passage is like you have to somehow touch the joint you have to go to the joint to be a man you know you get like these older cats from go to the joint they come back to your OGs they did some time and it, it, it fucks you up in all other areas of life you know what I mean like you thinking you here you are 
you know, this kid, 12, 13 years old, and you walking around like your nuts is about 50 pounds, right? And you thinking, you know, you, you like this, 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 this big shot. You trying to be that dude, that OG that you seen, right? But he, meanwhile, this dude, about, he done been to prison about 10, 15 times, right? Did a couple bids, you know, the neighborhood drug dealer, whatever, you know, but it's just, in the shit, it's, it's crazy. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know, man. It's just, I fell into that trap. Yeah, man, I mean, <clears throat> I kind of understand that, man, because, I, you know, when I was growing up, like, you know, I get what you're saying. I idolized the wrong people, you know? Um, the pimp players, hustlers, you know what I'm saying? Go-getters, you know? And uh, as you get older and reflect, you see where that shit derives from. You know, we talk about masculinity and shit. You know, as a black man, it's a real tough role. It's something that you gotta really carry with you, man, because it derives from so many different things, you know? Because being black in America, a black man has never had no power. You know, he's always been powerless, you know? The white man's always had control over him, his woman, his kids. You know, how can a black man really feel masculine when he's seeing the slave master take his wife, his daughters, and rape them, and he does nothing about it. All that shit is in his DNA. So from gener generation, generation to generation, it comes up to someone like me. I still got that shit running through my, through my veins. So in my little small clandestine belittle social economical situation that I'm living in, ghetto, hood, whatever you want to call it, that's where black men, they feel they're emperors in the streets, they're rulers with their drug empires, gambling empires, whatever they do, you know? Getting money the fast way, you know, you know all, you know, all the stories. But the thing is, is that <clears throat> now that I'm much older, I see shit so totally different. Like I always looked at my dad as a big old square. But that man owned his own house. He paid his bills, took care of his family. I never wanted for shit, you know? That's what a man does, you know? And, you know, I know now that a man handles his business, you know? So Aaron, so what, what does, I, I would ask you, right? You know, growing up middle class as you did, you know, with a, I don't know, a silver or a copper spoon in your mouth, right? So I would ask you, what does, what does manhood look like to you? Yeah, so I grew up in a middle-class town, but I certainly didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth. Masculinity was always a weird thing for me because 
when I was seven years old, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and he was given a short amount of time to live. And he ended up actually living for a lot longer than he expected, but he was never well. He was always sick. His cancer went in and out of remission. So, you know, it's like growing up, I had that mindset of, of a man should be like kind of a, the classic man, pay the bills, make money, support his family. And from the time I could remember, my dad was never able to. Um, so I always saw other people's dads coaching teams and I saw my dad in a hospital bed. So I didn't really get that normal relationship where your dad's taking care of you. It was more so flipped where I'd be in situations taking care of my dad. And uh, from that, I think it, it didn't, it left me with a lot of questions and realizing that I, not really appreciating or knowing what I did have, but really focusing on what I didn't have in that classic traditional father role. And so that I think left me searching, kind of left me wandering. And then as I grew older into what, you know, into that age where uh, a boy becomes a man, you know, I was really left without an idea of what that really looked like. Um, and more to the point is I was left with this, you know, cause my dad was a good dude and he did work hard before he got sick. And that kind of left him where to leave him. It left him, you know, dying in bed with cancer. And so it really left me with a big distrust for um, the ideal of work hard and you'll get, you know, what you, you dream of. I was like, well, that didn't work for my dad. So why don't I? And I was already dealing with my addiction and things like that. So I was like, you know what? Might as well cut some corners and make that money quick because you know, if you do good, good comes to you. I didn't believe in that. You know, I was like, if you do good, you're gonna get fucked. Life's gonna fuck you in the end. And all your hard work's gonna be for nothing. So why work hard when you can work easy and make some money? And that's kind of, uh, <laughs> that brought me to where I am today, sitting with y'all. So is that your idea of, I don't know, hustling, going out there, creating for yourself? Is that your idea of what masculinity looks like to you? You know what? I'm honestly, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out for myself because I went from this one warped idea of masculinity. Because, yeah, in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm making it. I'm making it easy. I'm making good money. Um and then I went to prison and it's like this real extreme of like the macho man masculinity um, and now I'm out I'm trying to figure out what the fuck masculinity means to me to be honest still figuring it out but honestly I think it's more more than anything for me it's standing on your own two feet and it's it's being comfortable it's being able to be vulnerable it's a lot of things that I really thought were not masculine that weren't tough um all those tough things quote unquote tough things became ingrained and uh like routine is how i operated and really what it was was a lot of hiding and uh you know what i found is that for me to be like my true self to be um vulnerable to be willing to ask for help um to be accountable that's really i guess what masculinity means to me today you know, it's strange how you and Curry, 
you know, y'all mentioned y'all fathers in y'all life. I never had my father in my life, right? So it was just my mother and my brothers. I'm, you know, I'm a baby of my mother's three kids. So I'm the youngest. And you know, they always say that a woman can't teach a child how to be a man. But in my mother's case, I think it was a little bit different because she was, she was tough, man. She was, a, she was a tough woman. And she, she got down, she grinded. You know, she had a little, she had a faults, you know, some drug issues, alcoholic issues, but she was, she was a tough woman. And, and I think, and I, I gotta thank her. You know, she passed away when I was 14. And, but the reason why I'm sitting here today is because of her. You know, a lot of, a lot of her traits I have, you know, that strength, you know, that perseverance. And that got me through a lot of shit. So it's sad, and it's, but at the same time, the things that she instilled in me kind of, you know, it made me who I am today. Like she instilled love, affection, um, you know, trust, you know, just, just values and principles that, you know, they didn't align with the life I was living in the street. And, and by doing what I do, I just, it's just like a, I'm representing my mother out here. Substance abuse? Y'all too. Ah, right, fuck it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Ask somebody ask Let's talk question. about this shit, man. Substance abuse is real, man. You know, for me, you know, uh, I started doing drugs when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. You know, we all got down on some rum and shit. And uh, rum and coke, some reefer, some motherfucking some them, them beanie reds and red pills and shit. I don't know what the fuck they were. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, I mean, shit, man, you know, but substance abuse has been the very first, the very first time that I was told that I had a problem. I thought the person was crazy when they told me that. They said, um, I hate to tell you this, Mr. Harbor, but it seems like you have a substance abuse problem. You know, um, you may be an alcoholic or an addict. And I was like, do I look homeless to you? I said, you see these jewels, do you see these rings on my finger? You see these jewels around my neck? Do it look like I'm an addict? You saying I'm a dope fiend or a crackhead? No way. Years late, I was in the penitentiary and I was telling somebody that went to AA meetings with me <laughs> about that conversation. And I was like, man, if I only, I mean, there was a time in my life where I had drugs on me at all times. Cocaine in one pocket, heroin in another pocket, pills, marijuana. I mean, not just to sell, to do. Cocaine, hard, soft, didn't matter. Kept everything with me at all times, knew where it was at. And I wasn't a drug addict, an alcoholic, you know? I think about how I became the addict, the alcoholic, the drug addict. Now I know how these things happen. When I first started getting into recovery, I was looking for somebody to blame other than myself and why I was in the predicament that I was in. 
but through therapy, a lot of hard work, going to meetings, listening to other people's suggestions, I found out that all of these problems and all of these substance abuse issues and stuff that I have, it all stems from me and how I viewed life and how I experienced things and what effects it had on me. And through recovery, I've been able to heal from this wound. It's still there. It's everywhere. I can see it all the time. It's a wound that probably will never heal. But one day at a time, I can keep it from getting infected by not using any substances or alcohol. And that's what this is about. My recovery is one day at a time. I don't think about tomorrow. Today, I'm going to treat the wound. You know how I treat the wound? With the right medication. And the first part of that medication is not to use. Okay? And then the other part of that medication is to every day accept the fact that I have a problem with drugs and alcohol. Okay? And then action. Do something about it. Go to a meeting. Talk to somebody. Things are going to help you deal with whatever triggers or other issues that have you running back to these substance, substance problems. Okay? And uh, am I healed? Yeah, I feel healed. But I'm healing. I'm not cured. You know? You could put it in a different way. I had a lot of wounds, but I'm tended to them, you know? And uh, every day that I deal with these wounds, I feel better. And my man Aaron over here, you know, you know, man, he's a power of example. You know, I really learned from him. You know, like, that's another thing about recovery, man. It puts you on a roadmap on a journey that you don't really know where you're going. But if you continue to do the right thing, you never know where you end up. This guy ended up with a class in a classroom with me. I learned so much from him. And man, like, I've even been able, he's even helped me stay clean one day at a time just from knowing him, you know? We did something together. We did this program together. We did another program together. This is how this thing works. This is a part of the healing. This is recovery. So, Aaron, um, can you speak to that? Can you, can you add to that? What yeah, yeah, so I mean, that, those are some very kind words from Curry, you know, hyping me up a little bit. But no, to be honest, um, you know, I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but like, for me, my addiction was, was hiding. It was avoiding and it was isolation. And, you know, Curry just kind of touched on one of the big things about my recovery is connection, is really finding that common ground with people um, and making those connections. We can't do it alone. You know what I mean? I can, I can get high alone, but I can't, I can't stay sober alone. And I think um, it's actually this, this dude, Brother Ali, he said, you know, basically there's fear, faith, compassion, and pain. And it's, those are four things that we all have. And the pain is kind of, for me, that's, that's what I was hiding from. And 
through addiction, like just because you're not feeling something, especially when it comes to like a trauma or pain in your life, doesn't mean that it's not there anymore. It doesn't mean it's gone. Um, you know, in, in that pain, that's what I was hiding from. And, and it, getting high did a good job of that. But the most important thing for me about getting sober, um, and I'll be honest, if I didn't get arrested, if I wasn't incarcerated post-arrest, um, I probably wouldn't be sober right now. You know, uh, it removed me from my life in a way that I, I couldn't have removed myself. But that being said, I also got out of prison and got high immediately. Um, but then I, when I did, it was just like, it was, you know, they, they say in AA, you're on an elevator going down. You pick what floor you get off on, but it's gonna keep going down. And uh, I really had that kind of realization where I was like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, like my mom signed me, like she, she bought me out. Um, so I was like, I'm not even fucking up my own life anymore. Like there's, there's people counting on me. Um, and that connection through all aspects. Um, and I think the most important thing for me has been, been finding compassion um, for myself and for others. Like realizing that maybe people's pain aren't the same, but you know, there's a Richter scale that measures earthquakes, right? Now, if you think about each person has their own like Richter scale to measure pain, Everybody has a moment, it's all gonna be different, but where it hits 10, right? It's the worst day of their life. Everybody has it. Mine might be different from somebody else's. We might be able to look at somebody else and say, well, it wasn't that bad, but it's still a 10 to them. And so once I was able to realize that, it's like, all right, everybody's suffering. And I know I'm suffering. So it's all, you know, and it's just that finding that compassion to that it's all right. You know, it's all right to, to be sad, it's all right to be hurt, um, and it's all right to get better, it's all right to do something different and go against the grain, and um, that's been really important to me, but yeah, really, I think the, the ultimate thing is addiction is isolation, and sobriety is connection, and connection is sobriety. That's right. Wow, that's powerful. When did the planes hit the... 2001. The building, 2001. That was my last time in isolation. I made a decision that uh, I had to go up top. <clears throat> and I said, when I got to higher security, I said, yo, from this moment on, I'm not picking up no more D reports. I'm gonna do programs, I'm getting out. And I put a routine together, mm -hmm. right? And a formula. So it took me from that point, six and a half years to be released. My first time being eligible for parole was three years after I made that decision. I was denied for three years. Then I went back three years later, boom, got my freedom. But in between all that time, I had a routine and I never broke it. You know, I stepped to everything because, and it worked for me. Right. When I went to my second hearing, the chairman of the parole board, she let me give my opening statement, and then she gave a statement. And she said, Mr. Harbor, in short, we sent you back with a three-year setback, and you went back and did everything that we wanted you to do without us telling you to do it. And she said, for that, you should be commended. Where, where, 
how, how do you want to be released? Damn. Then I went into my spiel about going to a reentry program and phasing down and everything like that. She said, okay, I have no more questions. Every board member, there were six board members that day. One had wasn't there. Every board member just said, good job, Mr. Harbor. We don't have no questions. And that's how the whole hearing went. My hearing was over in 10 minutes. No shit. And so when you talk, so I have to, I have to look at um, the structure and the discipline of that routine got me to the finish line. Right. You know, so that's the positive part of it. You know what I mean? Sure. But when you come out to the outside world, you try to like put that same thing in effect out here. And it's like, uh, it's like the whole ozone layer is gone. Right, and things are coming out of the space, out of the out of the space, and hitting you rapidly. You have no like, so when you come out here to the world, you're bombarded with so much uh, shit, man. Right, you know, um, everything is just like um, spontaneous, and you know you have to really be um, in a good position to ride these things out. Use those programming skills you learned in the joint. You know what I'm saying? You know, I don't care, man. I mean, like, dudes get out the joint, man, and, and they knock programs and shit, and they be like, man, I'm only doing this shit so I can get out. I used to listen to that shit. Like, right. when I first started doing the programs, I was saying the same shit. Like, man, I'm not fucking, man, I'm just here for the fucking, for the certificate. But I started listening to what these people were saying. And this shit was making sense. You know, talking about getting your emotions, and you know, because I would watch movies, man, that were tearjerkers. I wouldn't even cry. And people used to be like, man, you need to get in touch with your emotions. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Oh, I know I've been talking for a while. But, um, but I started really listening to what these people were saying. And I started applying it. Yeah. Like, I just started, like, man, like, they had all, like, CRA had all these coping skills, and, you know, they had all kinds of shit, man, right? Like, they, you identify people by colors and stuff like that, and that shit worked. Like, it's so, like, if you think about it, like, some of the shit that they teach you, um, it really helps you. Yeah. You and know? the thing, too, right, mm -hmm. to add on to that, is that... Like some of the curriculum, it doesn't really apply in many senses to, you know, like like guys who come from like the inner city, right? Like some of it's not realistic to some people, but if you shift certain words here to certain, you know, uh, scenarios there, then it applies. It matters, right? Because that shit really does, like if you really follow it, you can get something out of it. Right. It's what you put into it. Right. right. You know, a lot of guys, they be like, oh, fuck that, man. I don't know. I mean, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know. They don't know my experience. Right. But if you just apply yourself, then that shit can mean something to you. Right. You can get something out of it. Yeah, so, I mean, just to, like, follow up on what both you guys were saying, because, like, I, I do AA meetings, right? And one of the things they say when you first start going is, like, bring your ass and your heart will follow. 
you know, and especially like when you were just talking, Curry, about like doing the certificates, like yeah. just for the sake of getting certificates, right. and then all of a sudden you showed up to enough programming and shit, it starts clicking. And kind of like what you were saying, Eugene, where it's like, yeah, you can you can focus on all this shit that doesn't apply to you, and you can sit there and be like, yeah, see, this is all bullshit, or you can sit there and be like, all right, take that shit, push it to the side, and at the core of it, yeah, you now you're showing me something. Now we're talking the same language. And what made me even what made made the change even more like like concrete was like to see my family come and support me. But I wasn't supporting myself. I right. wasn't doing well. How can right. I how can I have somebody to come support me when I'm not even doing and taking care of myself, and right. taking care of what I need to take care of. Right, right. And that affected me. So from that point on, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna get it right. So I started applying the program. I even wrote to the to the commissioner at the time about a program, give me a program. Because they started a program and said life couldn't get in the program. Right. And I said, why can't I get in the program when I have an opportunity to go home? Right. This benefits me just as much as it benefits the next man. Absolutely. And they started letting guys in the programs over there. And then, in, um, so I got out five years later, I got out of DU, and I was supposed to see the board. You know what I did? I postponed it for five years myself. No shit. Yeah, I just said, you know what, I'm gonna take that hit, I'm gonna eat that. Right. And I ate it. And then I got down to the medium, finally, after four years in the max, and I got parole in 2020. I'm sure that sounds wild to people, like, to think that, you know, you had the opportunity to go sit in front of the parole board and you said, nah, I'm good. Like, what, how'd you make that decision? If, if you, you know, if you were, like, if there was, I'd imagine there was a big thought process that went into it that was a hard decision to make. Absolutely. You know, you want to, you know, freedom's right there. Like, yeah, freedom's right there. Right, right. But it's not. Like, we're not going to travel the world. I travel. True. When I was in DU. 12 years, 8 months, I'm the 13th, from 2001 to 2014. Right. I saw him 2009, here I am getting out. And I'm supposed to see him the year I get out. I wasn't getting that because I know I wasn't ready. Right. Right? So, and I knew they wasn't ready to see me. True. So, you know, you just got to own that. It's about accountability. I had to, I had to be accountable for my actions. Yeah. And that's, that's a hard pill to swap. Five years is five years. I right? can only imagine. That's yeah. a lot of shit. So I was like, you know what? I'm built for this. So, but when I say I'm built for this, I'm built to better myself. Word. You keep good thoughts in front of you, you get good results. It's that shit we learn. Take negative, turn into positive. <laughs> Flip that shit upside down. You think about all these programs that we've done, right? There's a lot of good shit come from. Absolutely. Just that simple shit about countering tapes, right? Before I ever did that fucking CRA program, you know what all my friends was telling me? It was like, I'm going to see how much fucking game you got if you can fucking graduate this program. He said, I want to see how fucking sharp you are. If, he said, if you get kicked out this fucking program, you're not sharp. He says, if you let them people out fucking think you into getting kicked out, like, fuck this, and I'm going to argue with them, because that's what they want you to do. They want you to argue and combat with them. No. Go in there, listen to what they're saying. 
the shit they're saying, as corny as it is, makes a lot of fucking sense. <laughs> you know? Give me a tape, Gene. Give you a tape? Give me a tape. I don't know how to give it to you, man. You didn't do the program? No, I didn't do that bullshit. You didn't do the shit all right? No, man. But I'll tell you some funny shit, though. This is just some yeah. real shit right here, right? Yeah. So before I got to the Tuppy class, right? Yeah. I was going to take the shit. Yeah. Right? I was like, fuck it. I'm going to get the CRA. I'm going to work this shit for parole. But this is how I was going to spin it, right? Yeah. So as I said, I was addicted to the streets. So right. I was going to finagle it like that and work right. with that shit. Right. Because you don't have to be addicted to a substance to be an addict. Right. You don't. You right. know what I'm saying? I had it in mind to do that shit, but when Tuppy came, you know I jumped on that shit like a fucking pony at a show. See, they didn't have that shit when I was there. You had to do that program in order to get out. You, there was no way around. See, now they want you to be an addict. They won't even accept you in the shit unless you have a substance abuse problem. They got this shit in there where they say, take a negative statement. You ever heard of this program, man? Nah, I feel like I know where it's going, but... They have this simple fucking method countering tapes just the shit you just said so the tape is if i violate my fucking parole i'm gonna fucking get high what's the flip what's the positive to that so if i don't violate parole then i'm gonna stay sober Would that be it yeah but you can make it even better than that how so i don't need to worry because i'm not doing anything wrong my urine is clean true if i'm late i'm late but my urine's clean See, the thing is, it's a thinking thing. That's what they teach you in there. Right. Yo, I had a, such a different idea what that program was about before I went in. Because everybody said, oh, they're going to teach you how to be a rat. And that's what everybody said. But that program wasn't about that shit. That program is about changing how you criminally think. I've run into that so many times. Any program that really I have found beneficial to me at some point, somebody's been like, yo, they're just trying to make you a rat. Right. Dead ass. Anytime. That's yeah. crazy. Who's the first person to think about that at the top of the food chain where now everybody has it in their minds that to do a program, to step into that room is, all right, now I'm turning a rat. And it's like, no, you're trying to fucking help yourself. Like, you're not telling anybody's story. You're not saying anything. You're just helping yourself. But we all have it in our heads because it's told to us that... Now we're snitched. But the funny shit is, a lot of guys that say that shit, a lot of dudes that be saying this shit, they turn out to be the motherfucking cheesy. Exactly. They over there eating the corner eating cheeses <laughs> and shit, right? right? It's just funny how they don't try to help you, they don't try to build you up, man. Right. You know, it's always about crabbing the pot mentality, right? Yeah. One motherfucker trying to get out, and the other motherfucker crawling on your back trying to pull you down and climb over you. Instead of y'all just building the ladder and pulling each other up. But they to pull you down. And I shit. was so glad that I did that program because I learned so much about my fucking self. Now Eugene, here's now Eugene, here's the thing though. Why the fuck? Did Why the fuck did me and Curry end up being addicts? It's not like you lived the sweet life. You know what I mean? Why? Why the fuck? Why the fuck did I turn to drugs and alcohol? And you did. And you you know, I can't relate in that sense. I just, I, I don't have, I don't think I have an addictive personality, right? right? But however, on the flip but side of that, I was addicted to the streets. You know, I like that street life. I just like being out there. And, and that's the shit ultimately that got me locked up, you know? Caused me to do 27 years in prison.
But um, you know, still, you know, every day still, is a struggle. Like, I don't have struggle. that have desire, desire to be in the streets any longer. But you know, sometimes you, you know, you want to break fool on a motherfucker. Sometimes, man, when they cross you. But you know, I got, I got to think better than that. I'm older now, more mature. You know, I got some hopes, some dreams, and I want to fulfill them shits. And I think it's like it's like laying down railroad tracks, right? Lay down the rails to get to where you want to go in life, what you want to be, and you just remember. Keep that shit as a, as a reminder when you don't want to go back to it. I don't want to get arrested. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be away from my family members. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. Even if someone's trying to hurt me, I don't want to hurt them. I don't live my life like that today. Because that would mean if I wanted to hurt you, if you said something to me, and I wanted to hurt you, you know what that means? That means that I've been carrying a lot of hurt and pain. I'm just trying to get my shit off. But today I don't walk around with all, I walk around with joy, brother. So if you say something fucked up to me, I'm gonna be like, yo, brother, how can I help you, man? How can I help you, man? I don't wanna hurt you, man. I wanna help you. You know, I love you, man. I don't want, I don't want, I want you to get some of this love, man. Kind of going off what Curry was kind of going off right what Curry was just saying right there is that I don't know what the fuck people I don't know what the was, fuck people's view of me but was. I know that I know but I know that I know what my view of myself and was, and I think I saw a reflection of that in other people's so eyes. When so like, when I felt like you know, I felt all you know, the hurt. I, was I felt all the hurt I was when feeling, and when people interacted with me, I always thought they were seeing like all my bullshit. I and I always thought people were thinking the worst of me. I always thought people thought I was a scumbag. Maybe they and did. I acted like and I kind of acted like it in return. You know what I mean? I was like, if y'all think I'm a scumbag, I in turn acted like one. You know what I mean? I did some shady stuff. And being an addict, people kind of have judgments. And my family, I'd show up high to things. And my aunts and uncles would kind of look at me a certain way. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be a mess on the streets and people walking by would look at me a certain and way. And I basically, I was like, fuck You know what I mean? I was like, like y'all don't want to have me, then I don't want to be a part of it. And um, so, yeah, I just kind of, so yeah, I just kind of, I was like, all right, I'm just going to hustle and hang out with the other fucking addicts. And they're all going to think I'm cool because I'm the one selling drugs to them. And that happened. And that happened. And I felt cool. I was the main. People wanted to hang out with me. You know what I mean? They wanted to buy drugs from me, really. But I didn't let that part worry me. They all wanted me around. And, um, yeah, I built up a life. Yeah, I built up a life for myself that was that uh, was just a bunch of mirrors. That was just a bunch of mirrors. There was like a reflection from there was like a reflection from one mirror off another mirror. Off another mirror. So it, it, I was so fucked up in myself, and like, up in myself and like trying to hide from who I was, not really know who I was. That that really to to be honest, right here today, I'm really still working to figure that out. Because um, I have a whole, um, lot, more a whole lot more experience of pretending to be, of somebody, pretending to be than somebody, somebody than actually being somebody. So, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really, yeah, still I'm really, I'm really still trying to figure out who right I am. I'm all right with where I am and what I'm doing and how I am. But yeah, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. Yeah, it's just crazy because I think for me, right? I think for me, right? I gave a fuck about what people thought about me as a child. 
Because when you in the lion's den, man, you got to perform, man. You're going to get ate the fuck up, right? So, you know, I was, it always been like a small dude and shit, like real, real small. I, I haven't grown that much as an adult either, but it just made me become more fucking violent, man. No, that shit carried on to, into my adulthood that it really, like when I was sitting up in the penitentiary, this joint up in DDU, right? I had to really like check myself because that shit was holding me back. I'm the one sitting here doing this fucking time up in this cell. Fuck what everybody else got to think. It's about me. And once I took that path and I made that oath to myself, you know, it's been on ever since. You know, it's just me moving forward and whoever's in the red can kiss my ass that don't like it, you know? That's just what it is. It's funny. I, I used to live, when I first came to prison, I was in the block with this Spanish dude. He was a little bit older than me. This is back when I was just crazy, wild as hell. I seen this dude 16 years later, like about two years before I got out. And he's like, yo, you remember me? He was old, he, was on, he had dialysis, his hair was gray. Puerto Rican dude, he's, he's a little old, way older than me now, but I mean, he was much older now. And he pulled me to the side, and he's like, yo, you remember me? I was like, sure, and he said, yo, we was in Walpole, blah, 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 blah. I said, yeah, yeah, man. He's like, yo, you changed, man. He says, back in the days, you used to come out your cell, you used to post up and shit, but now, he says, yo, you straight, forward. He said, every time I see you got a book in your hand, you're always saying something positive. You don't, like, you're, I don't see you with a gang of people no more. I see you doing programs. He's like, yo, whatever you're doing, man, keep doing it because you're going to get the fuck out. That's when I knew I changed. People, you know, and to, the way I view myself today is like, yo, man, I'm just a happy-go-lucky motherfucker, man. Like, you know, I've had my bad days, but hey, man, I'm chilling. I'm alive, man. That's a beautiful fucking thing. Living's a beautiful thing. I'm trying to do more of that shit, you know? Talk that shit, man. That's a motherfucking mic drop right there. Thank you for listening to the My Turn Podcast. My Turn is a community-based, university-accredited program, providing education, mentorship, and career development support to and by those who have been directly impacted by the criminal justice system. My Turn's objective is to provide an opportunity for each participant to rediscover and reframe their skills, interests, responsibilities, and commitments. This podcast is created and produced in partnership with Tufts University Jonathan M. Tisch College of Civic Life and the Bridging Differences Grant Program. Music brought to you by Elmo Playtest. Learn more or support my term at tuppit.org. T-U-P-I-T dot O-R-G.